Welcome to the Six Figure Event Podcast. Here we get real about what it takes to build extraordinary wealth as an entrepreneur, business owner, and event planner. We'll go places others won't, diving into the nitty gritty how-tos of events, strategy, sponsorship, and marketing. Plus, we have exciting interviews with those who've mastered their own craft and a segment called Interviews with Sponsors, where we get the lowdown of what sponsors really look for when sponsoring an event. This is where we win the event space together. I'm your host, Alicia May, founder of Eventistry by Alicia, mom of two, lover of Saturdays, and I'm obsessed with creating phenomenal, profitable events. With a decade of experience, I'm here to talk you through those event roadblocks and even help you get out of your own way. Don't get stuck while planning, strategizing, and budgeting an event or retreat. On the Six Figure Event Podcast, I'm your wing woman. We're going to grow your business, your following, and scale your dreams one event at a time. Welcome to today's episode. Today we have an amazing guest, Heather Reed, founder and CEO of The Planner Protect, which is Canada's only consulting agency dedicated to reviewing and negotiating balanced event contracts. I am so excited. I know that Heather has saved clients across North America more than, I think it's $9 million in real costs and avoided risks. I mean, that's incredible. I can't wait to dig in and talk about contracts and figure out how she helps event hosts and industry professionals through the written contract reviews, online webinars, all of that fun stuff. So welcome to the show today, Heather. Thank you so much, Alicia. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you how you got started in event contracts. How did you come to specialize in this? Maybe not so fun to some people, <laughs> industry. <laughs> Well, I've been in it for a long time. I've been in the industry for over 25 years, and I'm one of the accidental planners. In fact, back in the mid-90s, I was looking for a way to have a home-based business or job, which wasn't even really a thing back then, and I ended up working for a national association. And out of the work as their national administrator, when it was time to part ways, one of the things that I loved the most was their national conference. And I had been doing all of the planning for them for seven years. When I decided to strike out on something different, I was very fortunate to have a couple of other nursing associations at that time who took me on as their planner. And the rest is history, as they say, from there. Five years ago, I actually was listening to a conversation of my peers. And one of the planners that I just hold in really high regard actually said, I didn't know that you could negotiate force majeure. And it was one of those whiplash kind of moments. And I (laughs) turned around and said, what? How come you don't know that? And not in a mean way, but I just was really shocked because how could I have been working in a bubble down here in Southwestern Ontario? And how could I know and she wouldn't know? That really started the process of really listening to other planners and realizing that I was just wired very differently. I was very drawn to the academics of the event planning industry. You wouldn't hire me to do the creative for a gala or some sort of social event. I was very good at the academic side and very drawn to contract negotiations and what was in a good contract. And part of that stemmed 
first the wiring of liking the academic side, but also my very first contract that was given to me when I first started with the association was a convention center contract. Mm-hmm. So everyone knows that those usually yeah. are very long, very detailed, very legalistic. And it really scared me that I was doing was this awesome. work without a lot of training at that point, no training. And so I really went overboard in trying to find as much about contracts. So you fast forward 18, 19 years, and I had continued that pursuit of contract knowledge, trying to get the very best contracts and the most protected contracts for my clients. And then realizing that, in fact, when I really looked at our Canadian industry, there really wasn't a great place for Canadian event professionals who were planning events to go and get contract negotiation information, whether it's negotiation strategies or actually what makes a great contract, what should be in a contract, how do you protect the clients. That was where Planner Protect started was that what I saw as a gap in acquiring information and to be able to really protect our clients with contracts. From there, I created just a role. A site selection company do contract negotiations and they are very, very good at it, but not everyone uses a site selection company when they are locating their events. A lot of groups know where they want to host their event, but they still need the same expertise when it comes to being able to negotiate a contract. And so that's who my primary audience obviously aren't working with site selection, but are doing their own negotiating and then planners that are negotiating on behalf of clients. That's really where it started from. And I absolutely, as you said, I love reading contracts and I'm thrilled to just be a team member and come alongside someone just for that very short period of time when they're negotiating a contract for an event. And that's amazing. I think there is such a need in the market because it's very hard to negotiate if you have no idea that you can negotiate. A lot of my clients come to me and they've already signed on the dotted line. Yes. And I say, oh, oh gosh, I wish you would have talked to somebody like you that could have negotiated a million things or could have saved you in liability or attrition or any of those kinds of fun things that no one really truly knows about. They're a zone of genius maybe in speaking and coaching, but they don't know what the contract really looks like. Very well said. And that is exactly all of my event planning clients have been in the association and not-for-profit sector. And it really does. It breaks my heart to think that a lot of events are going into those events unprotected. Absolutely. Um, And should something go sideways, it really comes back to what does the contract say? I think here in Canada, we're somewhat complacent because we don't have a litigious culture. We're not sitting under the threat of being sued if we have a poor contract. I think we could learn from our American (laughs) colleagues that that's not a bad mentality to have. Not that we want to be sued, but we need to approach as if we could be sued for, you know, not having a good contract that protects the client and then approach it that way, that there are a lot of clauses in a contract that are only one-sided. I always say it comes back to who was the contract written by. It was written by a lawyer or a team of lawyers to protect the party that is offering the contract. And in most cases, that is the venue. And so we have to look at it and say, their job is not to protect the event. 
their job is not to protect the client. In fact, it is to protect their own bottom line, the venue's bottom line. Exactly. And so we have to know as much as the venue's legal team, uh, exactly. especially if we are not taking that additional step to take it to legal review. And everything I do has a disclaimer on it saying it's all well and good to have another planner with subject matter expertise, but it really should even then go to legal because the small investment, even though it seems like a big investment at the front end, would always prove to be a very small investment if you get into a situation on the back end. Exactly. It's very well said. I mean, I hope everyone that's listening knows that the contract itself is non-negotiable, right? When you sign that contract, you can't go back. Can you fix that contract? Can you renegotiate the contract? Is that a possibility? Have you ever come across that before? I have not been in a situation yet that I've had to go back and renegotiate a contract, um, but I am certainly aware of others who have, particularly when time is on your side. If you're up in the immediate future, you may not have an opportunity to negotiate. If you've done something that is months, if not years in advance, you may have an opportunity to go back and relook at something. But I will say our industry, and I've been in this long enough, 25 plus years, I stopped saying anything more than 25. I just put plus, plus, plus on it. Uh, I, it used to be that a handshake or an agreement, gentleman's handshake kind of thing would smooth over any kind of rough waters. But I would say that that has changed and we need to be more sophisticated than that. In our industry, and I'm sure you know this too, people are changing in their positions all the time. And quite often, who you start an initial discussion with the venue may not be the person who actually takes that negotiation through to the end or is there when your event is executed but something has gone wrong. It really behooves us to have everything in writing and a really good contract because that handshake doesn't mean much in court of law Uh, and it's just changed. And so I think it's more important than ever that we have contracts that are really good, solid, balanced document. And then we can take the discussion from there. It just gives you a a good place to start if things go wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love that. Heather, you've got such great wisdom and knowledge, and I think that this is such an important topic to talk about. So how do you approach then a thorough contract review and negotiation process? Well, I will say that negotiations are a time-consuming process. It's a proven negotiation fact that those that don't have time on their sides are the ones that give up the most. And for me, the earlier you can start in a contract negotiation, the better, because you want to be able to make changes. And so I have a three things that I am really quite non-negotiable about <laughs> for negotiations. <laughs> um, the first one is I read, read, and reread the contract. So the first time I read through a contract, it is literally to get the lay of the land. When I work with clients and understand that I am just an in and out in most situations, a client has received a draft contract and then I get brought into that process and then I'm there while the contract's being negotiated, then I'm out when that contract is signed. So the first time I'm looking through their contract, I'm really getting just the lay of the land. What are the dates? What's the space that they're using? 
What are the rates that they're paying? What does this contract look like? What is it saying? And so I just read it with no thinking involved, if I can put it that way. I'm just getting the lay of the land. And if something really pops out at me, I'll jot a note down on it. The second time I go through it, it's very, very purposeful. And I am looking for two things. I read the contract and I'm always very aware this time through, where are their responsibilities of the group and where are their responsibilities of the venue? Great. So I'm really looking at to what items, dates, financial benchmarks, where is the group being held responsible? And then I'm flagging those. I'm looking at all of those and I have a four color pen. That's how old school I am. I love those. Uh, I know I exactly you what okay? you're talking we're, about. We're a word <laughs> yeah. bunch, but yeah. I go through and my red pen is prolific in this round because I'm circling everything and I'm flagging. This is something that the group is responsible for. But I'm also looking for every time that the venue has held themselves responsible for something. And then the third time through, I am looking for items that are missing. And to me, often for the group, what is missing is what protects the group. Yes. Because as I said earlier, the contract is drafted to protect the venue, not the group. And so quite often I'm looking like, have they mentioned cancellation by venue? Have they mentioned their deadlines? Have they mentioned what's missing that would protect my group? And so then that's just the first part. The second thing that is a non-negotiable for me is that then I take all of that information and I put it in writing. I create a Word document that's set up in a very structured format and I go through every little thing and I put it in writing and I do that because then it's trackable. If you don't have the time to go through and relook at every single word to make sure it's been changed, you need to have some way of tracking all of these details. So I put it into a written report and I require that all responses come in writing. So if I'm looking at my own planning client, for instance, and I'm negotiating one of their contracts, I can have a conversation, but then I ask, please put this in writing because I don't want anything to be a verbal commitment or a verbal agreement. I want everything traceable and trackable. And so that's the second non-negotiable is everything about a negotiation goes into writing from my end and from the venue's end. And the other third piece that I think makes a thorough review is that I always do a comparison right back to the original RFP, the request for proposal. And I look at my request for proposal. I then look at the response to that request for proposal. So the venue's proposal itself. And I make sure that everything that was promised or mentioned is reflected in the contract. Right. So it's three things. I read, read, and reread. I put everything in writing. And then I compare all of the available documents to the final contract. Okay. And I then I that. know that everything is in one place. And then that goes, in the case of working with clients for Plan to Protect, that then goes back to the client. And quite often, they want to remain the face of negotiations. Right. I'm a behind-the-scenes worker. I'm giving them the key talking points. I'm giving them the key questions to be asking, the strategies, the ways to approach, the things that are missing. And then I follow through with support until it's signed. That's the way I approach a contract. It does take quite a bit of time. 
Because if you're going through every single word, line, revisiting, going back, if you're taking a first glance, I can just see how many hours and hours dependent on how long that contract is. I think a lot of us are really driven by getting tasks done. And one of them is a contract in some cases, and you just want to get it signed and get it off your desk and get on to the more urgent pressing matter. And yet contract negotiations really requires you to pause, be collected in your thinking and be focused on what you're doing. And so it's really carving out dedicated, quiet time to negotiate a contract. I love that. Great advice. So what in the contract, what clauses do you think that event professionals, even coaches, entrepreneurs negotiate well, and then not so great if they're looking at something because they may not even have an idea of what to negotiate? Absolutely. And thanks for asking. I think I'm going to generalize because this question, this answer could take all day, but (laughs) I think, right? The first part. So to answer well, I think event planners, we're really hyper-focused on things like the dates, the rates, and the space. Those are really critical parts to our negotiations. And a lot of us, it comes down to those things when we are selecting a venue. Are they the appropriate dates? Are they a workable rate? And is the space ideal for what I need to do for this event? And I think that's what we do well. And I think additionally, a lot of us have a good handle on what are appropriate concessions, what are appropriate asks for the size of the business that we are bringing to a venue. I personally don't get too focused on those. I mean, I make sure that if November 25th, they think it's a Saturday, I look at a calendar and say, yes, it is a Saturday kind of thing. The rates I don't get involved with unless it seems out of the norm. One of the things that I think I always look at is space. Is the contract space really good for the event that they're doing? Could it be worked better? I know one situation where the venue had placed an event and it was a conference. So there were lots of moving pieces. There were breakouts. There was a trade show. There was a main room. And the space allocation just didn't make a lot of sense based on how I knew that the building functioned. And so looking at space and saying, hmm, you know, I think they could align this a little better for you and it wouldn't be quite so spread out. So I think planners do a great job. That's what we do. We excel at creating events around date, space, and rates. Where I think less focus is put, and I think maybe because we don't know as much, and let me just qualify that to say, we don't know as much because there's not training for it. Right, <laughs> and that not. goes back to my first point, right? It was that there really isn't a great place for us to go and learn. So it's not that we don't want to learn. It's just there hasn't been a really good place to go and learn about contracts. I think we don't do as great a job in the clauses that protect us. And those three of them that really, in my opinion, are the big, really important ones. The first one being the indemnification clause or language, termination and cancellation. Those three carry the most risk to a group and quite often do not have balanced language that protects the group in the draft contract. So I would say that those three are the ones that I really focus on. And to give you an example, I probably five years ago now, I did an environmental scan, if you want to call it that, of 12 unconventional venue contracts that had been negotiated by some of my peers. They were already executed events. And I just wanted to get a lay of the land, like how are contracts being negotiated? 
And it was fascinating to me that when I looked at indemnification, and so looking at 12 contracts for like museums, for recreational facilities, for music centers, for community centers, that sort of thing, like unconventional. So not your hotel, not your convention center. Okay. In the indemnification, six of the already signed contracts had no language about what would happen if something went wrong and someone was sued or was hurt. And then there was a lawsuit. (laughs) There was no language about indemnification in six of those. Wow. In five of them, it was one-sided language that protected the venue. Sorry, one of them had language that protected the group. So for example, if the venue was to wash the floors and not put out the old sandwich board that says danger wet floors, someone slipped and fell and broke a hip. There's no language that would have protected the group if the venue had been at fault. Wow. So then I looked at termination and three of those contracts had no language about what would happen to this contract if something outside of our control happened. So no protections should there be a hurricane go through the area. Yeah, Um, exactly. Six of them had one-sided. So again, it was all about they protected the venue. And that's why I say lawyers protect venues. They know about these things. They know that they should write in language. And in this case, only a quarter of them, three of them had language that protected the group as well as the venue. For the group, it would mean that they'd be able to get out of that contract without any financial responsibility because of something that happened outside of someone's control. Right. So in nine of the 12 contracts, it would probably have to go to dispute resolution or something for the group then to be relieved of their responsibilities instead of it's already built into the contract and we know that we're relieved. We don't have to do anything further about getting deposits back or any of that kind of situation. It's messy. Right. And then the final one I looked at was cancellation. And this is the one that really I find the most painful Because indemnification, someone falling and hurting themselves is not frequent. It does happen, but probably most of the time something's not going to happen. Termination, again, same thing. We have to plan for it because we are in the industry of people's safety. (laughs) So we have to make sure that we've planned for that. But cancellation is something that can happen for any number of reasons. I don't know if you've been in a situation where a client has asked you to plan an event, then for some reason, it's just not going to work and we cancel the event. That's right. Oh, yeah, Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It does happen far, far more frequently. Well, you'll find this one fascinating. In the 12 contracts, all of them had language that addressed the fact that if the group canceled their event, they owed damages to the venue. So not surprising, right? We all know that every (laughs) single contract, I'm not sure I've ever seen a contract in my 25 years that didn't have language that said that if the group cancels the contract, they owe damages to the venue. Of course, of course. I mean, it's still, I would love to see behind the lines what that really meant though. What kind of percentage? and what how and where and what happened so absolutely absolutely. but the most painful is the fact that none of the contracts had language that protected the group if the venue canceled their contract oh gosh I just got goosebumps oh no that is horrible and that happens 
I'll give you an example. And it's not just because you're a little small meeting in a big venue that you think, oh, I'll, I might get bumped. I have worked with an association that had a half a million dollar piece of association conference business and a property closed down for renovations. Oh. And the group had no language in their contract that protected them if the venue canceled the contract. Wow. No damages paid wow. to the association. And yet, if the tables were turned and the group canceled the contract, they'd be on the hook for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages. Wow. Very interesting. What a way to put things in perspective. <laughs> yeah. And again, I come back to the fact I'm not pointing a finger or shaming any planner, but I think it's really, really important to realize that there is likely a gap in our knowledge yes. and we have to seek out that expertise because our clients or our employer are counting on us to know this. That's right. They trust us. Some of the contracts that I read are very hard to read. Some of them are very garbled and I'm thinking this is out of my comfort, especially conventions or like you said, the big events with multiple rooms and high spaces. So yeah. it is so important to read or to source out that to somebody who knows what they're doing. A hundred percent. I did an interesting project a few years ago. You'll find this interesting. It was a Toronto-based venue that actually had me work on writing. So taking the legalese, because there's a lot of it, as you just said, right? There's words that we don't really know the meaning of, and there's a lot of these and nows and therefores and thereafters <laughs> and all sorts of words, right? Yeah, yeah. You just kind of start to gloss over because it's just so confusing and hard to get down to the real core of what it means. And we worked on plain English language. And what they were hoping to do was to have a client come in and they would be presented with a legal version of the document and a plain English version of the document. Because what they found was that they were spending more time defending what contracts mm. that clients had signed, but they were coming back and saying, well, I didn't know that that's what that meant. Right. Oh, right. exactly. Right. Oh, and that's so, very interesting. Yes. And it really does. I think it makes sense for venues to truly have plain English language in their contracts, simple language with examples and illustrations. For example, calculating cancellation damages, put math in there, put formulas in there, give an example. If people don't take the time, then the onus is on them. They should be paying damages. But for others that are taking time to understand, then it's there and they can understand and really fully appreciate what it is that they're going to be on the hook for. Yeah, I agree with you. Contracts are shrouded, I think, in legalese. And part of it may be that that's a, <laughs> an advantageous place for contracts to be for venues. Right. I sometimes think that someone who's just starting out in the industry and you have this kind of contract and they're thinking, oh no, what do I do next? How do I go about protecting my client as well as myself? Because the onus would be on them if something, God forbid, happened. So kind of brings me to my next question. What advice would you give someone starting out in the event industry, looking at contracts with an eagle eye? Well, my first selfish reason would be take a course. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Find a course. And actually, you know what? It doesn't even require a course. I mean, that's my own selfish answer or tap into a contract review. 
have your employer, have yourself invest in a contract review. And I say that word strategically invest because it's not a cheap process, but I also know that in today's day and age, there's everything on Google. You can find so much information. I have benefited enormously from the fact that American hospitality lawyers write and give courses and do presentations all the time about what makes a solid contract. Wow. Interesting. So, that's where my education has come from because mm -hmm. there hasn't been Canadian content. So there are a handful of lawyers of the States who have been most generous with their expertise. And over my years, I've been able to amass, I actually have a three ring binder that I keep anything and everything that I think may relate to a contract. And so it's an investment of time and effort to really go digging and taking every single course or article or podcast to find those nuggets that you then can put in your checklist. And it's so simple and it seems rudimentary, but I don't function without my checklist. I have a 52 point checklist wow. that I use every single time. I don't know if you've seen the ad lately. There's an ad out and I forget what industry it's for. It's not ours, but that says, are you working from your memory or are you using a list? And I'm like, oh, that could be my tagline because <laughs> it's right? right. Because I don't trust my memory. Even with 25 years of looking at contracts, I don't trust my memory at all. I don't think any of us do. <laughs> No, because our memory is full of other things right. and contracts are just so not sexy. We don't want to remember. Oh gosh, no, I don't. <laughs> no. So it's going back to that robust checklist to say, have I seen this in the contract? Have I seen that? Has there been any reference to this part of a subject? I think for those starting out or those that think, hmm, maybe it's a time to just do a refresh on what I do know. And, and I know that for myself, it's like, oh, you know what? I knew that, but I just forgot the fact that I knew it. There's exactly. always those kind right. of situations too. It's good to be reminded of things. A person new in the industry can find out a lot, but my number one thing would be to absolutely seek out courses and actively engage in learning about contracts specifically. Exactly. That's great advice. Do you have a couple of examples the difference that negotiating can make? Because a lot of my clients come to me and say, well, I negotiated concessions or I negotiated adding a breakfast in bed or adding a valet parking, but what other things can they negotiate? What examples do you have? Everything is negotiable. I say <laughs> <Absolutely>, that too. <laughs> absolutely everything. And I would say that for planners that are negotiating on behalf of clients, so independent planners, third-party planners, or you're negotiating for your employer, I would say go beyond the concessions, going beyond negotiating on food and beverage, things like that. I think I've got a couple of examples on top of mind that really speak to avoided risk. It's one thing to save money on the front end, but when something goes wrong, you also want to make sure that you have saved money by negotiating strategically. And so one of the examples that comes to mind, going back to the cancellation by the venue. So that example about they closed down for renovations and the group didn't have any language protecting them. When that group negotiates another contract, now they're very aware that they need to protect themselves with language. And I've seen clauses where in a cancellation by venue situation, if the venue said, we're going to close down six months or we're just not able to take your piece of business and it's six months out, I've seen it. They owe the group $75,000. 
it's negotiating both savings, avoided risk, and being compensated for things not being honored in the contract. Another big one I can think of, we all know that there could be any number of reasons why a group may decide not to host an event. It just could be a poor business decision. It could be a change in mandate. It could be a change in financial viability. There's just any number of reasons why groups may decide not to host their own event. And the terms around canceling by the group, there's an approach to negotiating damages called profit replacement. And it's based on that legally we don't owe revenue, we owe profit that was expected to be generated. So in one case, the draft contract, so I'm going to use the example of six months out from an event, one of the association's draft contracts came in at $181,000 would be owing from the group to the venue if the group wanted to cancel the contract six months out. Wow. When the contract was signed, we had negotiated all of the terms of how that cancellation was decided, how it was calculated, how it was figured out, and basing it on profit replacement. The signed contract, if the group had decided to cancel six months out, they would have owed $26,000. So that is a savings of $152,000 if that group had had to cancel. Right. I mean, that's just incredible. (laughs) It it is, but it's knowing what and how to negotiate. So it's not only just savings on the front end, like, you know, I saved $110,000 on my food and beverage, but it's also saving when it's about risk. And that's where I think we don't do as good a job. That's right. Yeah. Because it's not as apparent and we don't think about the risk. I think of people, humans are very, for the most part, positive and they want everything to go well. So even if I have a coach or a consultant or somebody planning an event, they're focused on the design and the beautiful branding and not oh. assist, right with the risk. Associated as they with should everything. be, right? Exactly. They should be. That is their focus. And there are people that have expertise that can protect them. It's all about getting a team around you that don't know what you don't know. Right. I love it. So can you tell me if you can say, because I'm very curious, what is the craziest thing you've come across when negotiating or looking at a contract? The craziest thing. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Ooh, uh, wow. I've seen mathematical mistakes in a contract that have made tens of thousands of dollars of difference. Wow. There's probably too many to, okay, to yeah. tell. Well, I don't know about crazy, but there's some that make me angry. <laughs> <laughs> I like to hear those. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, one that really is a pet peeve of mine and and it goes back to termination. There's two parts of termination. So that's our force majeure. There's all sorts of names that you can give force majeure and termination is really the principle is that something extenuating has happened, whether it's acts of God or threat of terrorism or World Health Organization Mm, advisories, that sort of thing. So what I've seen is that the word strikes is quite often included in that list of things that could happen. And one of the things that absolutely just annoys me to no end is that in some contracts, it even goes so far to say that strikes, even when it involves the venue's own employees, is that a reason that the venue can claim force majeure? Oh, wow. So I mean... Right. Think about that. So if I have an event there and I'm trusting that things are in order and I've, they have unionized staff in some capacity, 
if a venue says, well, sorry, our staff is on strike, and therefore we can get out of the contract with no damages owed to the group, okay, say you're six months out. Now the group, it may not seem like a big deal, but let's think about it from the group's perspective. The group now needs to spend time finding a new venue. The group may have to inform their attendees about a different location. The group may have a fraction of their attendees that can't attend the new date because they couldn't find another venue for the same date. Like there's just such an implication around an event being moved by a venue. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, there's a million things. <laughs> there are a million things. And so that one's annoying. I find that one just like, oh my goodness, really? And then the other one around the force majeure that I have an issue with is that a lot of the wording says the force majeure incident has to involve the venue. So let me give you an example. Hmm. So if I have a group, um, and I'm actually working on a contract right now for a client, that 95% of their 700 attendees have to fly in to the destination where the venue is. So what if the airport closed down because of threat of terrorism? We now have 650 attendees that can't get in to the destination to attend the event. But the wording of the contract says, well, yeah, both parties can cancel this because of threat of terrorism, but it's only if the hotel is affected. The hotel, in this case, it would be open for business, would be able to host the event, but the group is not able to say, hey, I need out of this because 650 of my 700 attendees can't get in. Right. So those are the things that they're not crazy, but they are annoying. (laughs) They make me angry too. <laughs> well, kind of, right? Like, but if we don't take the time to really read between the lines of what the wording means, that's when we get caught. Exactly. Yes. I can't believe how much information you provided. How can people get in touch with you? Do you have any downloads? Let people know where they can find you. I can be found at plannerprotect.ca. A couple of things on my website. At the bottom on the left, you'll find a newsletter subscription and I publish an electronic newsletter every other Thursday and it is educational. I do a short little tip or article one Thursday and then two weeks later, I provide an educational video in that newsletter. I also then promote the webinars that I hold. So that's one thing. And on the right side of the bottom of my webpage is a complimentary call. So if you're struggling with an issue and it's a quick question, you can book a 15 minute call. Anything beyond 15 minutes, obviously it's getting into a service that I provide. I'm certainly available to have a quick chat or just reach out by a good old fashioned email, which is simply Heather at plannerprotect.ca. Well, thank Um, you so much, Heather. That's amazing. And are you on LinkedIn as well? I am on LinkedIn. Yeah, I do anything from in-house training to contract reviews to industry presentations. When I started Planner Protect, it was about building industry efficacy. It wasn't about building dependence on me. I really want planners to be rock stars at negotiating contracts. I love it. I love it. Well, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. And if you want to get in touch with Heather, you know where to find her, plannerprotect.ca. Thank you so much, Alicia. This has been a thrill and I hope I haven't talked your ear off. (laughs) No, I just want to talk forever with you. I just want to, (laughs) I want to ask you a few questions myself. Thanks for listening to the Six Figure Event Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and take the tools and tips and information from our guest speakers to help build extraordinary wealth 
as an entrepreneur, business owner, or event planner. Join us again next week for a new episode that I hope will continue to help you win in the event space.